During today's episode, I'm going to be telling you about a show I think you should check out. It's the Future Hindsight Podcast. So take a moment to hear what I have to say about them in the middle of the show and listen wherever you get your podcasts. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left Podcast, in which we shall take a look at how the Supreme Court turned the tables on average working people back in the 70s when they empowered wealthy individuals and corporations to have an outsized role in our politics. And now we are trapped in the reality that shift in power created, but are dreaming of a better way to manage our economic and political systems for the benefit of all people. Sources today include the Tom Hartman Program, Jim Hightower's Radio Lowdown, the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolff, Off Kilter with Rebecca Vallis, and the Zero Hour with R.J. Eskow, with additional members-only clips from Citations Needed and Off Kilter. This all started in 1976, when, when uh, James Buckley, the uh, William F. Buckley's older brother, he was the, I believe he's older, um, he was the senator from New York, the Republican senator from New York. And he wanted to be able to use, he was a multi-multi-millionaire, he wanted to be able to use his own money in his campaign to basically wipe out his opponent. And federal election law at the time, in 1978 or 1976, said, no, you can't do that. There are limits on how much money anybody can spend, including the candidate himself. So he took this to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, hey, it's your money. You can do whatever the hell you want with it. And the rationale that they used was that without billionaires being able to put money into politics, now get this, this is, this is amazing. Without billionaires putting money into politics, quote, or let me, let me rephrase that. Uh, their rationale was that restrictions on rich people buying political office, quote, this is a quote from the, from the Buckley case in 1976, necessarily reduce the quantity of expression by restricting the number of issues discussed, the depth of the exploration, and the size of the audience reached. This is because virtually every means of communicating ideas in today's mass society requires the expenditure of money, end quote. In other words, the Supreme Court said, if you're a billionaire or a multimillionaire and you want to pour money into politics, that's going to help politics. Because, you know, you'll have, uh, we'll have a discussion, of a more in-depth discussion, more topics. Because the money is going to expand political discussion. Which raises the immediate question, okay, that's fine for the top 1, 2, 3% of Americans who can afford to, you know, throw thousands of dollars a year or millions of dollars a year into politics. But what, are the, what about the 97%? What about the rest of us? Our free speech is pretty much limited to how loud we can stand out in front of our house and yell. It's limited to our ability, you know, our ability to vote, I guess, is a form of speech. Our ability to say something on social media. But what about our right to have our political views aired? Well, the Supreme Court had no interest in discussing that in 1976. So James Buckley won that case. And the Supreme Court, for the first time in the history of the United States, legalized rich people basically owning politics. Two years later, in 1978, in First National Bank versus Bellotti, they did it again. They said, this is true of corporations as well. If corporations want to put money into politics, no problem. 
And then in 2010, they, they tripled down on this and overturned hundreds of American laws nationwide, state and federal laws, and just gutted any protection that Americans have against rich people, against billionaires basically owning our political systems. So now we have a situation where every single Republican in the House of Representatives, and, in the, and most of them in the Senate, frankly, are terrified of the billionaires and the industries that can harm them. And every Republican in the House of Representatives is there. I mean, they're just like, they, you know, please don't ask us to, to restrict guns. The gun manufacturers will pay for advertising for our, for our primary opponents. Please don't ask us to, to do something about Medicare Advantage ripping people off. The health insurance companies will devastate us in the next primary. I mean, it doesn't take, you know, in a primary election for the House of Representatives, half a million dollars is enough to take a person down in most parts of the country. It doesn't take a lot of money. When you've got an industry, you know, the health insurance industry, for example, is making literally a billion dollars a week in profits, probably. I, yeah, I don't know the exact number, but I'd be amazed if it wasn't at least a billion dollars a week. They can easily peel off a half a million bucks. Chump change. That's, that's like pennies in the couch, right? They can easily pay, peel off a half a million or a million dollars to take down some politician who decides he wants to do something about Medicare Advantage. Or guns. The gun industry is making billions. They can do the same thing. I mean, it just goes on and on, right? The fossil fuel industry making billions. They they own every Republican. In fact, Sheldon Whitehouse. This I, this I I found this on his website last night. Um, Sheldon Whitehouse points out that prior to 2010, keep in mind, 2010 was Citizens United. Prior to the Citizens United decision. Republicans were actually in favor of doing something about climate change. Seriously. John McCain ran for president on doing something about climate change. He said, quote, while we cannot say with 100% confidence what will happen in the future, we do know the emission of greenhouse gases is not healthy for the climate. As many of the top scientists throughout the world have stated, the sooner we start to reduce these emissions, the better off we'll be in the future. He was the lead co-sponsor for the Climate Stewardship Act which had other Republican co-sponsors. The Clean Air Planning Act was supported by uh, Republican Senators Lamar Alexander, Lindsey Graham, and Susan Collins. Republican Senator uh, Olympia Snow was the lead co-sponsor of the Global Warming Reduction Act in 2007. Multiple Republicans supported the Low Carbon Economy Act and the Clean Air Climate Change Act. In 2009, Republicans supported the Raise Wages, Cut Carbon Act and the Waxman-Markey Carbon Cut Cap-and-Trade Proposal. Maine Republican Susan Collins was the lead sponsor of the Carbon Limits and Energy for America's Renewal Act. She said, Republican, Republican uh, Susan Collins said, in the United States alone, emissions of the primary greenhouse gas carbon dioxide have gone up more than 20% since 1990. Clearly, climate change is a daunting environmental challenge. And then came 2010, and everything changed. Clarence Thomas, who'd been groomed for over a decade by right-wing billionaires and fossil fuel billionaires, the Koch brothers, had been groomed for this, became the deciding vote on Citizens United, a legalizing bribery of not only politicians, but also federal judges like Clarence Thomas himself. 
And once the fossil fuel industry could pour unlimited money, uh, amounts of money into either supporting Republicans who deny climate change or destroying Republicans who, who assert climate change, once that happened, the entire Republican Party went silent on climate change. Sheldon Whitehouse on the floor of the Senate, quote, I believe we lost the ability to address climate change in a bipartisan way because of the evils of the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision. Amen. So if we want to do anything, if we want to do anything about student debt, if we want to do anything about the quality of our schools, if we want to do anything about health care, if we want to do anything about, about climate change, if we want to do anything about you know, uh, banks and, and, and airlines ripping us off with, with fees and things, if we want to do anything that takes on any major industry, we have to overturn Citizens United. That has to be done first. Hear it? What's that sound? Ooh, it's Washington's revolving door, allowing corporate interests to come directly inside Congress to pervert public policy. That door is now spinning fast because there's a new boss operator in Congress. He's Mike Johnson, who was recently unanimously chosen by Republicans to be their Speaker of the House. He's a corporate wet dream, an affable ultra-conservative from Shreveport who consistently backs the plutocratic agenda of big business over workers, the poor, consumers, and most other Americans. Moreover, Johnson maintains it was God who elevated him to his new position of authority and that the Bible will guide his policy views. Well, selected parts of the Bible. Don't expect much mercy, justice, and peacemaking from this hardcore laissez-faire ideologue. For example, guess who he's chosen to be his director of policy? Big Pharma's top Washington lobbyist. Dan Ziegler has been the chief influence peddler for a dozen multi-billion dollar drug giants, including Eli Lilly, Merck, and Pfizer. Ziegler has furiously opposed every legislative effort to stop the rampant price gouging, even though 90% of Americans are clamoring for Congress to clamp down on pharmaceutical ripoffs. But we 90%ers don't control the revolving door. Mike does. Johnson piously cloaks himself in both the Christian gospel and libertarian myth of free markets, yet he has consistently pushed government action to restrict competition and protect drug monopolies. Now, in his first substantive action as Speaker, he is literally bringing Big Pharma inside to sit with him in the seat of legislative power. This is Jim Hightower saying drug pricing reform will soon come up for a vote in Congress. Before Mike's lobbyist buddy tells him what to do, let's demand that he reread the Sermon on the Mount. Most individuals, you know, throughout life, you know, if they're accurately described as serial liars, people stop believing them. You know, they just say, well, that's another bit of magical thinking from Joe or something. Why is it that corporations and corporate executives never seem to lose credibility with the public? Even after this is all publicized, they're proven wrong, the public benefits from these health and safety issues and other protections of consumers, environment, worker, children, patients, and the like. Why don't they lose credibility? Well, it's kind of the key $64 million question, but I'd say a couple of things. One of which is, 
in some cases, the things they say when they said them have the patina of plausibility. Well, you know, maybe jobs will get cut if we make auto companies spend more money on something, things like that. So they have a, sometimes have a patina of plausibility. But the second is we don't go back and say, you said that before and it didn't happen. You said that before and it didn't happen and said that before and it didn't happen. They just go forth. They've learned that you just, you know, you come up with your talking points, you say them, you hammer them, and, you know, they've been effective. What we need to do is ridicule them. Say, listen, it's just a game. What you're playing here is a game, and you're playing a game with lives and the planet and all of that, which is, again, it's the purpose of the book. Every time they say something, we our natural instinct is to debunk it, which means we're playing on their playing field. We want to pre-bunk it. We say, that's bull. You're just playing a game and listen to how you've done it in the past. Because, I mean, you know, many of the quotes in this book are kind of hilarious, <laughs> actually. So we want to make fun of them. And we're hoping that this becomes a little bit of a vaccine going forward. Well, you talk about the sanction of shame, that you want to have people read this book and then say basically shame to these corporations and to shame them, ridicule them, expose them. Right. Is that enough? Well, I don't think it's enough. Well, first of all, the other word I would add is dismiss them, right? You remember Reagan used to say to his opponents, oh, there they go again. It was just the best dismissive line, right? So we want that. But it's no, it's not enough. You've got to have the power to take it all the way home in America. You know, you've got to pass laws that expose their self, not expose their lies. I mean, you could do that, but it's really expose their self-interest. And, you know, you talked about lead. I mean, the interesting thing about lead is, you know, they said, you know, lead's healthy for you all the way from that period of time when it was in paint and when it was in gasoline, early part of the last century. And then finally in 19, you know, in the late, you know, halfway through, more than halfway through the century, you know, standards were established where lead was taken out of paint and gasoline. They knew just as the fossil fuel companies, just as the opioid makers, just as the tobacco companies, they knew the scientific truth. So these were lies and they were in their self-interest and lives were lost because of it. So I think that's part of the shame is to say, it's not just a game, but it's a game that you're playing with people's lives and you know it. Millions of lives we're talking. You know, we're talking the denial of coal dust creates coal miner pneumoconiosis. That's a half a million lives in the last century of coal miners lost horrible asphyxiation deaths. Then there is the 450 thousand people who die from smoking-related, tobacco-related diseases. Just add that up year after year. And then there's at least 300,000 people, workers mostly, who died from asbestos exposure. All of this was denied. There's no proof asbestos creates cancer or mesothelioma. There's no proof that tobacco smoke creates cancer, heart disease, until the Surgeon General's report started coming out in the mid 1960s. I mean, it, this is more than just lies, falsehoods, off-the-wall predictive phoniness. It's more than that. It's deadly. In other words, it's, it's not just rhetoric. It's not just craziness. Right. It leads to the suppression of the society's response to foresee and forestall hazards, ripoffs, and the like, and to engage in preventive activity, regulations, opening it up for lawsuits under tort law, and deterrence. So we're dealing here with not only malicious pattern of rhetoric, we're dealing here with deadly delays. A lot of these phony denials delayed the reaction, as you point out in the book. 
delay the reaction of the public to correction. By the way, readers should know that in this book called Corporate Bullshit, Exposing the Lies and Half-Truths that Protect Profit, Power, and Wealth in America, it's not just corporations. It's not just their trade association like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. It's academics. It's publications like the National Review. It's reporters who should know better in terms of their reporting. It's headline writers that have inaccurate headlines because of their predisposition against the content of the story, like broadening health care protection in the country. Here's an interesting transition, Donald, that you yeah, probably yeah. have thought of. People listening to Trump starting out in 2015, his campaign, look at this guy. He just lies every day. Just in four years as president, he made 35,000 lies or false statements, according to the Washington Post, which tracked his rhetoric day by day, led by Glenn Kessler, the reporter. And people would ask me, how does he get away with this? Why do people believe this? I said, well, you know, one simple answer is that millions of people have been believing phony advertising for years. This product is good for your nutritional needs when it's phony. This color product is pretty and it will attract your kitties when it's bad for them. All kinds of phony assurances in the credit industry, in the auto industry, these pharmaceutical products, over-the-counter pills, they're safe and effective. And so people were predisposed in their consumer activity to believe these advertising lies. So what Trump Mm -hmm. did was, you know, he just took that kind of pattern and moved it big time into politics And he had a constituency that was already programmed, so to speak, to be gullible enough or trustworthy enough to believe these corporate advertisers, and they took in his lies and his falsehoods. Any comments on that? Well, a couple of things. I mean, I think we all know repetition is key to propaganda and advertising, right? You you know, we know that if somebody says something as many times or long enough, it becomes a, it, you know, it penetrates into a belief. It goes past the intellect and it right just becomes a fact that we believe is true. I think that's you know that's part of what Trump is doing. He just says it over and over again. And then they decide they believe him. And once they decide they believe him, then everything he says is the truth as well. So I think that's really what's going on. Corporations have say it over and over and over again. And we go, well, it must be true. And then one other thing, part of the you know, the assault on the specific things that we've been talking about in terms of the laws and regulations and health and safety and all that is in parallel, there's been an assault on government, on the idea that governments need to do things. They're both the idea of government, the institution of government. There's this, you know, this drumbeat for 50 years. And so that's the sea you're swimming in. And when you, you know, that's the sea we're swimming in politically, you know, in public opinion. So if the next thing you say is, and another regulation is going to be bad for all of us, it's, you know, it's not operating from scratch. It's operating on top of what have become negative attitudes towards government action. Our ad system respects your privacy, but if you'd like to get rid of them entirely, we would love to have you as a member of the show. Members enjoy an ad-free version of the show, as well as bonus episodes and bonus content in each regular episode, plus extremely handy chapter markers that help identify and navigate the clips. Sign up for membership at bestofleft.com support. 
for thousands of years working people, whether they were villagers or slaves or serfs or proletarian workers, have had dreams of a way of working radically different from what they were subjected to, a way of working that was a community of equals who got together to produce something the larger society needed. They wanted to do that as a community of equals. We have seen efforts to do that in every society, in every religion, as a noble effort to break out of the dichotomy master-slave or the dichotomy lord-serf or the dichotomy employer-employee. What socialists could have and should have integrated into the core of what they're about is not just to bring the state and society in to the economic decisions, to not let a small minority of capitalist owners, profit-driven, be the intermediary who decides everything. That's not enough. And that's what the 21st century is teaching socialists. It's not enough. It was a big step. It was an important step. You made huge gains. You established an important law of society being directly involved. But society has to be directly involved inside every factory, office, and store, too. It turns out that socialism faced a question it did not come to terms with. Here's that question. Maybe it's the case. And let's put it as a question. Can you sustain a socialist revolution that puts the state in a powerful position in society as a whole without putting workers in a powerful position inside the workplace? I think history's answer to that question is you cannot. You cannot even sustain the socialism you were successful in establishing, starting with the Russian Revolution and spreading ever since. You weren't able to save it, to preserve it, to sustain it. And maybe, question, maybe was that because you didn't change the reality inside? where people work, the factory, the office, the store, and that other place where people work, the household, the family. Maybe the revolutions that changed families when slavery gave way to feudalism, that changed families again from feudalism to capitalism. Maybe the whole concept of family has to be rethought Reunderstood, question. Socialists have to have the daring to recognize the omission of that level of society when the revolution was discussed. Fix it. Bring the revolution into those areas from which it was excluded. If democracy is the central principle we want to uphold, then we have to democratize the workplace too. Democracy in the workplace is the opposite of the autocratic 
dictatorship of the CEO in a business, of the owner, of the operator. Either you live in a community and understand the community as necessarily democratic, or you don't. Socialism can reimagine itself, redefine itself, and become even more powerful in the 21st century, in my judgment, if and to the extent that it offers a vision of a new workday life. That's where most adults spend most of their lives, at work. And work can be a democratic community that you enjoy, that you want to go to, where you learn, where you are nurtured in your relationships with other people. Not a place of being a drudge, being a drone, and listening to the orders of employers whose only interest is making money versus building a society. A socialism with that kind of vision, that will be a socialism that builds successfully on what it did in the 19th and 20th century, but also recognizes what it didn't do, what wasn't enough, and what will be necessary to win the support of the mass of working people in the years ahead. As promised, I want to tell you about the podcast Future Hindsight. They take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for all of us. They think about what you can do beyond voting, short of running for office, and it turns out there are a lot of possibilities. On Future Hindsight, host Mila Atmos has compelling conversations with public servants, activists, journalists, and so much more. Together, they tell a story about your power and agency in the future of this American experiment. You'll always get a dose of hope and inspiration on how you can get involved. Future Hindsight is a weekly podcast. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts or on futurehindsight.com. So the Magnolia Mothers Press is a guaranteed income program that we really started dreaming about in 2017. And we started dreaming about it because as an organization, Springboard opportunities work directly with families that live in federally subsidized affordable housing. And we pride ourselves on being radically community driven, meaning that every program, every service, every activity that we provide is one that the residents within those communities have indicated they need in order to be successful in life, school and work. When 2017, we became concerned that we weren't moving the needle on poverty and what that meant for us is that we were not seeing a successful transition out of the affordable housing communities that these families live in. And it's not as if that was our goal, but for so many of the families that we work with, that is their goal. They either want to live in market rate housing because they want the privacy or they want to move into home ownership. And so we realized that we weren't accomplishing that. So we went to families and we simply asked, what is it that we're missing? And everything that families indicated needed was more money. And so it really was How do you go about giving individuals that live in affordable housing, mainly Black mothers, cash without restrictions? And that's where the Magnolia Mothers Trust came from. So it's a guaranteed income program that provides $1,000 a month for 12 months, $12,000 total. We are, in essence, doubling the income of the women that we work with. We've been doing this work now since 2018. We are on our fifth cohort of women 
Um, not only do we provide a guaranteed income for the moms, we also provide 529 accounts for their kids because we believe not only in investing in the moms now, but investing in the future of their kids. And I tell people all the time that cash is important and it's significant with the work that we do, but it is the least sexy part of what it is that we do within the Magnolia Mother's Trust. It's just one small piece of it. It's the changing the narrative on poverty. It's allowing these women to actually be able to show up in their full selves, their full abundance, the ability to show up and have their dreams actually be listened to and actualized. And the fact that we have really had a small part on the play in how we talk about cash and the need for better cash-based benefits within this country and the fact that all of that started right here in Jackson, Mississippi from an organization that is led by Black women working with other Black women has been um, an amazing testament to the power of community and its um, power of movement work. And for anyone who's not familiar with the Magnolia Mothers Trust, and I feel like guaranteed minimum income, um, universal basic income, there's a lot of those buzzwords that have gotten a lot more visibility and a lot more play in recent years. The child tax credit expansion, for example, yeah. that was just a sadly one-year experiment. It was allowed to end um, in the the earlier part of the pandemic because of pandemic legislation. Um, and, and that was a piece of legislation that actually cut child poverty in half. These, these are things that have really raised the visibility of this idea, guaranteed minimum income. It, it's it's taken it from being a talking point, something we, you know, heard uh, Martin Luther King um, and mm-hmm. you know, even President Nixon arguing for, you know, decades ago, but really took that idea and said, hey, actually, this is something that, that we can we really can do. And this, this really is something that we should do. Your project, um, uh, I feel like a lot of folks uh, increasingly have heard about it for any, for anyone who hasn't and who is interested in the subject and wants to know more. Um, we've had you on the podcast now several times talking in greater depth. So I'm going to put a few of those links in show notes so folks can go and check out the other episodes with you because what I'm really excited to get to do with you today is to actually really zoom out um, and to ask that bigger picture question that you were asking in your TED talk, which is what does wealth mean to you? Um, and as I mentioned, you're, I mean, really, you know, spoiler, a big part of that talk and a big part of what we're going to be talking about today and the message that you're really getting out to the world is it's time for us to redefine wealth um, as a country. And that's really important for, for us to do um, if we're in the business of talking about economic justice, economic liberation, um, and we want to do more than just tinker around the edges of the status quo. So, so I feel like the right place to kick off that conversation. And I'm excited to spend really the entire episode getting into this in depth with you. This is going to be fun. But I want to sort of ask, um, what was the story behind how you chose this as the theme and the lead for your talk? What does wealth mean to you? So actually, the thing for my talk really was I was thinking about, can we be brave enough to reimagine wealth? So that was really where I was coming at it from. But but even with the reimagining wealth and having those conversations, it really is something that I've been thinking about for the last year and a half, last two years. And it's directly connected to the work that I do each day with the Magnolia Mothers Trust and the work that I get to do with the women of Springboard as a whole. And so as we have been doing this work and as we see more women moving towards a place of income stability where they're not under the backdrop of financial scarcity, they were starting to talk about wealth. And I say that in my talk. And the way that they were talking about wealth was not the way that my colleagues and friends in the space of the economy or an economic justice talk about wealth. And 
it made me realize that we were missing. Um, our language wasn't connecting. And so since our language wasn't connecting, that we were excluding from the conversation the very population that we need to be including if we are talking about how do we go about resolving for wealth in this country and how do we go about making wealth accessible to everyone. And so it really was, okay, when thinking about the women that we work with, how do you define wealth? What is wealth to you? And how do we use that as the entry point to the conversation, recognizing that that definition of that of wealth is valid, recognizing that that definition of wealth has merit. And instead of saying that, okay, oh, how you define wealth isn't actually wealth, we meet you where you are. And we say, okay, you know what? That is wealth. And that's a re- that's a reorientation for us rather than a reorientation for them. But so many times we don't do that. We are coming into the conversation with this capitalistic frame that, okay, wealth has to be six months worth of savings. Wealth has to be equity in your home. Wealth has to be X, Y, Z. Well, for a population that is just moving to from income instability, now saying that you have to have X, Y, Z in order to have wealth, it continues to exclude them. And they continue to not feel as if they can actually be a part of the larger conversation that we actually should be centering them. And so that's really where it came from, just thinking through how do we actually use the wisdom of community and use the wisdom of these women to actually reorient our conversation into a conversation that actually, it's a conversation of equity. And it's a conversation that actually does get us to liberation more so than this narrow frame that we have been using. I mean, either you believe in democracy in which everybody You know, the basic idea is if you're affected by a decision, then you have a de facto right to participate in it. Are there limits to that? Sure. But the basic principle is why we have elections, so that we have some input over the people whose decisions affect our life. If the mayor determines the tax rate or if the city council determines the tax rate I have to pay, well, then I have some input onto that process and we don't allow that in the corporation. And we act as if that's a dictate that has to be. I want to remind folks of a little historical lesson here. Under slavery, in various parts of the world where we've had slavery, sometimes for centuries, but even if we took the example of the United States as a colony and then in, you know, up until the Civil War, we said that a slave was enshrined in the law is a property of the, of the master, of the owner of the slave. That's a relationship. And I can show you endless literature that said, that this was the way God meant it to be, because otherwise, how could it be otherwise? God made the earth seven days, works fast, and he got this all done. And it would last forever. It was a great system. It recognized that some people are masters and other people aren't. And in feudalism, we did the same game, only we changed the names and we changed the relationship. It became lord and serf, and the serf wasn't owned by the Lord, but entered into a mutual obligation. And then we come to capitalism, where we don't have masters and slaves, and we don't have lords and serfs. We have employers and employees. 
But the point of the history is nothing is forever. There's nothing written in the stars that has it says it has to be this way or that way. And, and the irony of ironies, if you go back far enough, and there's a key point here, to village economies and many examples in Asia and Africa, sizable groups of people lived without a hierarchy. They divided the labor. They divided the decision-making. But to give a small number of people the outsized dominance that masters have over slaves, lords over serfs, and employers over employees was deemed inappropriate. And we acted on that basis. Last little point. Okay. I, I know when people get into this conversation, they sometimes avoid it by saying, oh, these other arrangements, these democracies can only work for little enterprises. They couldn't work for a big one like Ford or something else. This is wrong two ways. Number one, when capitalism emerges from feudalism, it always starts with a little capitalist and a half a dozen workers. It took a long time for capitalism to figure out how to manage large corporations, and it invented the corporation along the way. Right now in the world, there is a, uh, a worker co-op called the Mondragon Corporation in northern Spain. It's large. It's about 130,000 people are part of that corporation. They've demonstrated in the 75 years they've been going that you can go from small. They began as a parish priest in northern Spain with six parishioners as the workers to the 130,000 that they are today tremendously successful economic growth. They're the seventh largest corporation in all of Spain. They're a family of worker co-ops. So the, we've done the work. The marvelous thing is not to have an idea about it. That's easy. That's what I do. But I'm in a position of saying the realities are all around us. The examples are there. The history is documented. There's no possible excuse for tabooing it out of the conversation so that even workers who know they can run the enterprise, who know how badly they've been treated by their employer, do not think through with their leadership to put that issue on the table alongside the other issues that ought to be democratically decided. A, a comment and a question. First of all, when it comes to auto workers, I have a, you know, a pretty, I have a middle class car. I have a Subaru Forester. My Subaru Forester tells me when I'm drifting out of the lane. It tells, it shows me where I'm backing up into. It beeps if I'm getting too close to something in the front and back. Seems to me if the auto industry is capable of navigate you know finding these developing these systems to navigate a car then then we as a society can develop systems for navigating a democratically run company because people say oh it's too complicated how would you do that well no we can i'm pretty sure we're smart enough to figure that out i, I wanted to switch to another labor dispute we have the strikes in hollywood and the writers guild has come to an agreement the actors have not yet um but in a piece i did i i worked on a lot and didn't publish maybe i'll publish it anyway at some point i looked at netflix because i think this is an example of 
of another problem with the way we govern companies. Uh, Netflix, you read the business press, it, it, especially when the strike began, it was filled with all the trouble that Netflix was in and Wall Street was down on it. And there were these problems. It goes up and down. It may have changed since then. But if it, and that's why they couldn't give if their creative workers what they needed. So I looked at it. I, Netflix's total revenue in 2022 was $36.6 billion, 10 times more than it had been a decade earlier. Its net income was four point. 492 billion, which to me is a lot of money, but its stock price took a dive that year. And why? Because uh, they the trend lines didn't look good enough for Wall Street. Now, there were reasons for that. People were going back to work and they weren't, you know, uh, watching media as much. But so it was down 22. It's down a little bit from 2021. But it's 2021 income was nearly doubled out of the year before. So over two year basis, it was doing great. So but the fact is, uh, Wall Street, it seems to me, thinks in terms of uh, trends, because that's where they make their money, right? When It seems to me, but correct me if I'm wrong, when stocks go up and then the incentive packages for the, the small groups of people who run these companies uh, are based on Wall Street's valuation. So they, they have no incentive under this system, the CEOs or their investors, to just let the company make a healthy profit and pay all its workers what they deserve. If the workers took it over, I would think they don't have to worry about all this crap. They can just say, you know, it's up one year down another year, but we're doing great. We're solid. We put out a good product for the time being. We're good. Let's pay our workers what we need. And by the way, a democratically run Netflix would probably have better product. And so I see this, and I'll just read off the, the 10 of them here. Um, the West Virginia Democratic Executive Committee affirms a, a support for a 21st century economic bill of rights, affirming the right to a job that pays a living wage, the right to a voice in the workplace through a union and collective bargaining, the right to comprehensive quality health care, the right to a complete cost-free public education and access to broadband internet, the right to decent, safe, affordable housing the right to a clean environment and a healthy planet, the right to meaningful resources at birth and a secure retirement, the right to sound banking and financial services, the right to an equitable and economically fair justice system, and the right to vote and otherwise participate in public life. Um, I think that these are all very sort of middle of the road things. I think these are American values. I don't think that this is a, this should be at all a partisan thing. And I've seen some interesting responses where, you know, um, one uh, one sort of progressive Twitterer weighed in and said, well, no wonder that the West Virginia Democrats support this. This is very moderate. Right. This is just saying that they won't they won't take they won't get in the way of you having a job that pays a living wage. Right. And you and I can understand that there's two ways to understand rights. There's negative rights that say the government isn't going to prevent you from having these things. The right to free speech, for instance, is a is really a negative right that says the, the state is not going to interfere with your, it's not necessarily guaranteeing that the state is going to provide a platform for everyone. But, 
you know, it's not going to interfere there. I think these are affirmative rights. I believe that these are these are absolutely not saying that the state won't interfere with your access to broadband, but will actually facilitate your access to broadband. These are, I think, every one of, as I was reading through these points, I could think of different episodes of this program where each of these things has been highlighted as um, a, an economic justice issue, a disability justice issue. You know, if you can't participate in public life if, right now, if you don't have broadband, Lord knows through the pandemic, I don't know how you were going to school. And I know that there were people sitting in McDonald's parking lots and Starbucks parking lots using the free Wi-Fi in order to get their education, which is also not necessarily fully guaranteed right now. Now, now the other criticism I've seen from it is, well, this is nice. This is a lot of nice words. Is there any enforcement? And one has to go, well, no, not at the moment. First of all, we're a state party. We can't actually create laws like that. Well, can you throw somebody out if they don't believe that? Uh, Maybe we can get there. I don't, we're not there yet. But what it is saying, and I haven't talked to a single person within the party who hasn't said, this is great. Thank you. Now we know what we're organizing around. Now we know what we can, what we're, how to make the conversation um, happen without having to respond to the other size categorization of us. And I think part of this, part of the problem is that um, since the 1990s, right, Newt Gingrich and others within the Republican Party were very, very, very good about taking control of rhetoric nationally with the contract for America and various other, right? Um, the whole choose your topic. It, it's been colored by um, the Republican narrative. It's Obamacare. Okay. Well, that's been turned around and he took, he decided to make that an affirmative thing, but that, that was not how that was intended. And we ended up with that as our rhetoric anyway. Right. Um, same thing with death panels. Right. And now Joe Biden has started talking about a republic or the com, uh, any commission to uh, discuss cutting Social Security benefits as a death panel. And that's, I think, really brilliant rhetorically. But it's nonetheless, we had to take their rhetoric and turn it around. Um, the, the Democrats have been playing re- reactively for how they're defined. And I see this at every level of government where the news cycle is um, this side does this and Democrats say this about it. And it's never the Democrats out ahead of an issue, defining it on their own and forcing the other side to, to react to it. It's never. And so I really am looking forward to when Republicans start trying to attack these things and say, or anyone, I mean, I, I, whether it's a Republican, a Democrat or anywhere in between, um, you know, no, Americans don't have a complete, a right to a complete cost free public education. You know, you don't have the right to medical care. You don't have these very basic rights that, um, to, to paraphrase Senator Sanders, at the richest country, at the richest time in our history, should be able to offer these things. And again, I go back to um, what I was saying earlier about our, our this this perverse sense of government services exist to make a profit and or exist to make certain numbers go up. And if it's not, if those numbers, if those measures aren't going up, then we might as well cut the program. And it makes me think of. Uh, Robert Kennedy Sr., before he was assassinated in 1968, who gave a great speech 
that I think about a lot where he talks about how like what the gross national product can measure and it can it can measure the bombs that we drop it can measure the ambulances on our roads it can measure the uh, the quality of our roads how much we're spending on textbooks all of these types of things but what it can't measure is the quality of our play it can't measure the quality of our leisure it can't measure the actual quality of of education and the civic leaders and civic participants that we are that we are um, fostering through our expenditures on education. Uh, GDP and G- gross national product are both incredibly limiting um, uh, uh, measures. And if we use those alone to dictate our policies rather than uh, looking at, you know, asking the hard questions of, well, what does it mean to have the right to a clean environment? Um, well, is it is it just how many pieces how much how what the parts per million concentration is of a given poison of whether it's PFAS or another one or are we actually working not to just limit the poisons but to create a proactive you know so that we're not necessarily having to just measure things constantly to say up oh, now that's too dangerous but it was it was just under too dangerous before right how do we how do we proactively stop another flint michigan from happening how do we proactively um, say that, hey, maybe our municipal water services shouldn't exist to make shareholder profits at all. We've just heard clips today, starting with Tom Hartman describing the shift in power granted to the wealthy by the Supreme Court. Jim Hightower, on his radio lowdown, looked at the impacts of Washington's revolving door. The Ralph Nader Radio Hour discussed corporate bullshit. Richard Wolff, on Economic Update, described a forward-looking vision of socialism. Off-Kilter discussed ideas of how and why to redefine wealth. The Zero Hour interviewed Richard Wolff about democratizing workforces, and Off-Kilter looked at the new Economic Bill of Rights from the Democratic Party of West Virginia. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Citations Needed looking at media framing and rhetoric around recent worker strikes. People are surprised when they learn about labor history, about the history of these strikes and these workers and these leaders, about the fact that, you know, an anarchist couple led the first May Day parade in Chicago in 1886. Shout out to Lucy and Albert Parsons, you know? Like, there's so much throughout our history that is kept from us. And Off Kilter continued their discussion about redefining wealth. Wealth, you say, is about a sense of agency, a sense of freedom, the collective well-being of the whole. It is not an individual pathological pursuit. To hear that and have all of our bonus contents delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. For more on creating a positive vision for our economic future, I think it's really worth going back to the old classic that I just republished this year, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, looking back at the four freedoms and Economic Bill of Rights proposed but ultimately unfulfilled by FDR. The episode is originally from 2019, but you'll find it in the podcast feed around June 23rd of this year. Now to wrap up, I just want to talk for a minute about shifting baseline syndrome. And I will get to the economics, but I first 
came across this term related to the environment and reductions in wildlife abundance. So the shifting refers to the change in the situation over time. Before, there were such and such number of birds, and now there are this many fewer, or bears, or insects, or whatever. But the baseline of shifting baseline syndrome refers to us and our perception. Each generation of people comes along and is introduced to the world as it is at the time of their childhood and their formative years, and that becomes our baseline. So someone in their 20s may go out into the world and find it to be a a wonder of plenty and natural beauty, while someone in their 80s may see the current world as a diminished version of its past self and feel sorrow over that. So the shifting baseline syndrome is the difficulty of each succeeding generation in accurately placing themselves within the larger context that extends far back before their birth and their own personal experiences. Now, you know, as an example, like maybe you've been really lucky to have gone snorkeling near a tropical beach somewhere, and you've been overjoyed to have seen a giant sea turtle swimming in the ocean. And that's great. It's an ancient creature that's still part of the natural world and a real thing of beauty. What a world of abundance we live in. But what is also true is that Christopher Columbus wrote in his journals that his sailors were kept awake at night by the thousands of turtles in the ocean bumping noisily into the hull of their ship. That kind of a shift is a lot harder to keep in our minds compared to what we experience personally. So this brings us to economics. There's an endless debate about how much money is a good and moral amount of money for a person to be paid for their labor, not to mention all the non-monetary resources we all have to ration out, like access to health care. And as a side note, I do say that on purpose in that way because it is a myth that we don't ration health care in the United States. We say that that's something that only happens in countries with socialized health care systems, but no, we ration care as well, but instead of rationing it by need, we ration it based on ability to pay. But back to the debate over how much people should actually be paid for their work. My point today is not just to argue that a higher percentage of corporate profits should be distributed to the workers rather than the management and the investors, or that worker ownership is a better way to achieve that basic goal, of course, but to put that current debate into a larger context and expose how shifting baseline syndrome is playing a role. There are plenty of people alive today who were born into a world in which a middle-class family with only one person earning a paycheck could build a more prosperous life for themselves than is possible today, by a long shot, and there are a lot of reasons for that. But because that was the emerging norm at the time, there was no sense like these people were greedy or decadent or anything like that. But now we live in a time after decades of neoliberalism has been relentlessly making incremental shifts in economic norms and corporate power in which people both individually in their minds and collectively through how we interact with each other have been taught to do more work and expect less compensation for it. And if you stand up and say that people should make more money or that we should get more time off, the response that we often get is an accusation of decadence 
or laziness. But rather than simply debate that point or argue back and forth about the right level of work versus pay versus free time, etc., I would suggest that you, within yourself, sort of interrogate why you think what you do and encourage others to do the same. Have your opinions been shaped by short-term perspectives, hampered by shifting baseline syndrome, or do you have a larger historical perspective? There's a lot of evidence that the expectations of our current economic system is causing widespread burnout. Millennials have been called the burnout generation. All of this coincides with the rise of the gig economy and the the grind set, the idea that to get ahead, one must simply work harder, claw and scrape at every opportunity to earn money. And it has gone so far that people who suffer from clinical burnout, who need desperately to take time away from work to rest and recuperate, feel like to do so would be selfish and decadent. The culture of neoliberalism, not just the economic policies, but the culture, the collective mindset, the judgment from other people, has created this toxic stew where doing something that is healthy for ourselves is often looked down on. Hmm, must be nice, someone might say, you know, dripping with judgment when a coworker suffering from crippling stress and anxiety finally decides to take an extended vacation. Meanwhile, the culture of neoliberalism congratulates those who have amassed hundreds of unused vacation days. Good for you, never miss a day, grind it out, build that wealth, right? It is a cultural ratchet that only turns one direction, and it's not just the rich and powerful who have somehow brainwashed everyone into thinking that overwork and underpay are laudable. We now do it to ourselves and each other with every little judgmental comment, every suggestion that not taking that vacation is the path to promotion, and it all drives people to work ever harder and expect ever less. The only way to truly shift the economic system is to also shift the culture around it, to call bullshit on the premise that this is the best we can do, that corporate profits and the carrots of possible raises and promotions hung in front of us are things worth sacrificing our health for. It's a sort of mass delusion, but it's an understandable one because most people working today grew up in this environment and never knew anything different. They didn't live through the time of enormous union power that helped keep corporate profits and labor wages on track with one another. They've mostly lived through this period of corporate power, record profits, and flat wages. It really is understandable that people would simply adjust to the new baseline the same way we adjust our expectations about how many turtles we should see in the ocean. This is how the world is. This is how the world works. This is what I need to do to survive. Let's get on with it. But history shows that it's always worth trying to find ways to improve the situation for the vast majority of people on a structural level, not just by encouraging everyone to work harder and meditate more if they're stressed out. But we also need to use our imagination to strive for something better. Even if the past is better than the present, why would we imagine that that's the best we could do? The past should be inspiration, not a blueprint. And we need to be guided by human needs more than any economic metric. 
widespread burnout, stress, and anxiety, these are symptoms of the disease. Our economic system and the associated culture aren't the only problem, but they are a real big part of it. So we have to work collectively on breaking the delusion that we've been doing things right for the past few decades, and that any problems that may arise, you know, people being stressed out, people going bankrupt from healthcare costs, anything in between, that, you know, these are just problems to be dealt with on an individual level, that maybe you should have just worked harder and clocked a bit more time on that meditation app. That is going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in. I would love to hear your thoughts or questions about this or anything else. You can leave us a voicemail or send us a text to 202-999-3991 or simply email me to j at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and LaWindy for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who already support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support. You can join them today by signing up. It would be greatly appreciated. You'll find that link in the show notes along with a link to our Discord community where you can also continue the discussion. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com.